Chapter sixty five and sixty six of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter sixty five. As he lay on his bed, day after day, slowly recovering, he woke up to the fact which most men arrive at sooner or later. I mean that very few care two straws about truth, or have any confidence that it is righter and better to believe what is true than what is untrue, even though belief in the untruth may seem at first sight most expedient. Yet it is only these few who can be said to believe anything at all, the rest are simply unbelievers in disguise. Perhaps, after all, these last are right. They have numbers and prosperity on their side. They have all which the rationalist appeals to as his tests of right and wrong. Right, according to him, is what seems right to the majority of sensible, well-to-do people. We know of no safer criterion than this, but what does the decision thus arrived at involve? simply this, that a conspiracy of silence about things whose truth would be immediately apparent to disinterested inquirers, is not only tolerable, but righteous on the part of those who profess to be, and take money for, being par excellence guardians and teachers of truth. Ernest saw no logical escape from this conclusion. He saw that belief on the part of the early Christians in the miraculous nature of Christ's resurrection was explicable, without any supposition of miracle. The explanation lay under the eyes of anyone who chose to take a moderate degree of trouble. It had been put before the world again and again, and there had been no serious attempt to refute it. How was it that Dean Alford, for example, who made the New Testament his specialty, could not or would not see what was so obvious to Ernest himself. Could it be for any other reason than he did not want to see it? And if so, was he not a traitor to the cause of truth? Yes, but was he not also a respectable and successful man? And were not the vast majority of respectable and successful men, such, for example, as all the bishops and archbishops, doing exactly as Dean Alford did, and did not this make their action right, no matter though it had been cannibalism or infanticide or even habitual untruthfulness of mind. Monstrous, odious falsehood! Ernest's feeble pulse quickened and his pale face flushed as this hateful view of life presented itself to him in all its logical consistency. It was not the fact of most men being liars that shocked him. That was all right enough. But even the momentary doubt whether the few who were not liars ought not to become liars too. There was no hope left if this were so. If this were so, let him die, the sooner the better. Lord, he exclaimed inwardly, I don't believe one word of it. Strengthen thou and confirm my disbelief. It seemed to him that he could never henceforth see a bishop going to consecration without saying to himself, 
there but for the grace of god went ernest pontifex it was no doing of his he could not boast if he had lived in the time of christ he might himself have been an early christian or even an apostle for aught he knew on the whole he felt that he had much to be thankful for the conclusion then that it might be better to believe error than truth should be ordered out of court at once no matter by how clear a logic it had been arrived at but what was the alternative it was this that our criterion of truth i e that truth is what commends itself to the great majority of sensible and successful people is not infallible the rule is sound and covers by far the greater number of cases but it has its exceptions he asked himself what were they ah that was a difficult matter there were so many and the rules which governed them were sometimes so subtle that mistakes always had and always would be made it was just this that made it impossible to reduce life to an exact science there was a rough and ready rule of thumb test of truth and a number of rules as regards exceptions which could be mastered without much trouble yet there was a residue of cases in which decision was difficult so difficult that a man had better follow his instinct than attempt to decide them by any process of reasoning instinct then is the ultimate court of appeal and what is instinct it is a mode of faith in the evidence of things not actually seen and so my hero returned almost to the point from which he had originally started namely that the just shall live by faith and this is what the just that is to say reasonable people do as regards those daily affairs of life which most concern them they settle smaller matters by the exercise of their own deliberation more important ones such as the cure of their own bodies and the bodies of those whom they love the investment of their money the extrication of their affairs from any serious mess these things they generally entrust to others of whose capacity they know little save from general report they act therefore on the strength of faith not of knowledge so the english nation entrusts the welfare of its fleet and naval defences to a first lord of the admiralty who not being a sailor can know nothing about these matters except by acts of faith there can be no doubt about faith and not reason being the ultima ratio even euclid who has laid himself as little open to the charge of credulity as any writer who ever lived cannot get beyond this he has no demonstrable first premise he requires postulates and axioms which transcend demonstration and without which he can do nothing his superstructure indeed is demonstration but his ground is faith nor again can he get further than telling a man he is a fool if he persists in differing from him he says which is absurd and declines to discuss the matter further faith and authority therefore prove to be as necessary for him as for any one else 
By faith in what, then? asked Ernest of himself. Shall a man endeavour to live at this present time? He answered to himself, At any rate, not by faith in the supernatural element of the Christian religion. And how best should he persuade his fellow-countrymen to leave off believing in this supernatural element? Looking at the matter from a practical point of view, he thought the Archbishop of Canterbury afforded the most promising key to the situation. It lay between him and the Pope. The Pope was perhaps best in theory, but in practice the Archbishop of Canterbury would do sufficiently well. If he could only manage to sprinkle a pinch of salt, as it were, on the archbishop's tail, he might convert the whole Church of England to free thought by a coup de main. There must be an amount of cogency which even an archbishop, an archbishop whose perceptions had never been quickened by imprisonment for assault, would not be able to withstand. When brought face to face with the facts, as he, Ernest, could arrange them. His grace would have no resource but to admit them. Being an honourable man, he would at once resign his archbishopric, and Christianity would become extinct in England within a few months' time. This, at any rate, was how things ought to be. But all the time Ernest had no confidence in the archbishop's not hopping off just as the pinch was about to fall on him and this seemed so unfair that his blood boiled at the thought of it. If this was to be so, he must try if he could not fix him by the judicious use of bird-lime or a snare, or throw the salt on his tail from an ambuscade. To do him justice it was not himself that he greatly cared about. He knew he had been humbugged, and he knew also that the greater part of the ills which had afflicted him were due, indirectly, in chief measure to the influence of Christian teaching. Still, if the mischief had ended with himself, he should have thought little about it. But there was his sister, and his brother Joey, and the hundreds and thousands of young people throughout England whose lives were being blighted through the lies told them by people whose business it was to know better but who scamped their work and shirked difficulties instead of facing them. It was this which made him think it worth while to be angry, and to consider whether he could not at least do something toward saving others from such years of waste and misery as he had had to pass himself. If there was no truth in the miraculous accounts of Christ's death and resurrection, the whole of the religion founded upon the historic truth of those events tumbled to the ground. My, he exclaimed, with all the arrogance of youth, they put a gypsy or fortune-teller into prison for getting money out of silly people who think they have supernatural power. Why should they not put a clergyman in prison for pretending that he could absolve sins, or turn bread and wine into the flesh and blood of one who died two thousand years ago? What, he asked himself, could be more pure hanky-panky, than that a bishop should lay his hands upon a young man and pretend to convey to him the spiritual power to work this miracle. It was all very well to talk about toleration. Toleration, like everything else, had its limits. Besides, if it was to include the bishop, 
let it include the fortune-teller, too. He would explain all this to the Archbishop of Canterbury by and by, but as he could not get hold of him just now, it occurred to him that he might experimentalize advantageously upon the viler soul of the prison chaplain. It was only those who took the first and most obvious step in their power who ever did great things in the end. So one day, when Mr. Hughes, for this was the chaplain's name, was talking with him, Ernest introduced the question of Christian evidences, and tried to raise a discussion upon them. Mr. Hughes had been very kind to him, but he was more than twice my hero's age, and had long taken the measure of such objections as Ernest tried to put before him. I do not suppose he believed in the actual objective truth of the stories about Christ's resurrection and ascension any more than Ernest did, but he knew that this was a small matter, and that the real issue lay much deeper than this. Mr. Hughes was a man who had been in authority for many years, and he brushed Ernest on one side as if he had been a fly. He did it so well that my hero never ventured to tackle him again, and confined his conversation with him for the future to such matters as what he had better do when he got out of prison. And here Mr. Hughes was ever ready to listen to him with sympathy and kindness. CHAPTER Sixty Six. Ernest was now so far convalescent as to be able to sit up for the greater part of the day. He had been three months in prison, and though not strong enough to leave the infirmary, was beyond all fear of a relapse. He was talking one day with Mr. Hughes about his future, and again expressed his intention of emigrating to Australia or New Zealand with the money he should recover from Pryor. Whenever he spoke of this, he noticed that Mr. Hughes looked grave and was silent. He had thought that perhaps the chaplain wanted him to return to his profession, and disapproved of his evident anxiety to turn to something else. Now, however, he asked Mr. Hughes point-blank why it was that he disapproved of his idea of emigrating. Mr. Hughes endeavored to evade him, but Ernest was not to be put off. There was something in the chaplain's manner which suggested that he knew more than Ernest did, but did not like to say it. This alarmed him so much that he begged him not to keep him in suspense. After a little hesitation, Mr. Hughes, thinking him now strong enough to stand it, broke the news as gently as he could that the whole of Ernest's money had disappeared. The day after my return from Battersby I called on my solicitor, and was told that he had written to Pryor, requiring him to refund the monies for which he had given his I.O.U.s. Pryor replied that he had given orders to his broker to close his operations, which unfortunately had resulted so far in heavy losses, and that the balance should be paid to my solicitor on the following settling day, then about a week distant. When the time came, we heard nothing from Pryor, and going to his lodgings, found that he had left with his few effects on that very day after he had heard from us, and had not been seen since. I had heard from Ernest the name of the broker who had been employed, and went at once to see him. He told me Pryor had closed all his accounts for cash on the day that Ernest had been sentenced, and had received 
2,315 pounds, which was all that remained of Ernest's original 5,000 pounds. With this he had decamped, nor had we enough clue as to his whereabouts to be able to take any steps to recover the money. There was in fact nothing to be done but to consider the whole as lost. I may say here that neither I nor Ernest ever heard of Pryor again, nor have any idea what became of him. This placed me in a difficult position. I knew, of course, that in a few years Ernest would have many times over as much money as he had lost, but I knew also that he did not know this, and feared that the supposed loss of all that he had in the world might be more than he could stand when coupled with his other misfortunes. The prison authorities had found Theobald's address from a letter in Ernest's pocket, and had communicated with him more than once concerning his son's illness. But Theobald had not written to me, and I supposed my godson to be in good health. He would be just twenty-four years old when he left prison, and if I followed out his aunt's instructions, would have to battle with fortune for another four years as well as he could. The question before me was whether it was right to let him run so much risk, or whether I should not to some extent transgress my instructions, which there was nothing to prevent my doing if I thought Miss Pontifex would have wished it, and let him have the same sum that he would have recovered from prior. If my godson had been an older man, and more fixed in any definite groove, this is what I should have done. But he was still very young, and more than commonly unformed for his age. If, again, I had known of his illness, I should not have dared to lay any heavier burden on his back than he had to bear already. But not being uneasy about his health, I thought a few years of roughing it and of experience concerning the importance of not playing tricks with money would do him no harm, so I decided to keep a sharp eye upon him as soon as he came out of prison, and to let him splash about in deep water as best he could, till I saw whether he was able to swim, or was about to sink. In the first case I would let him go on swimming till he was nearly eight and twenty when I would prepare him gradually for the good fortune that awaited him. In the second, I would hurry up to the rescue. So I wrote to say that Pryor had absconded, and that he could have one hundred pounds from his father when he came out of prison. I then waited to see what effect these tidings would have, not expecting to receive an answer for three months, for I had been told on inquiry that no letter would be received by a prisoner till after he had been three months in jail. I also wrote to Theobald, and told him of Pryor's disappearance. As a matter of fact, when my letter arrived, the governor of the jail read it, and in a case of such importance would have relaxed the rules if Ernest's state had allowed it. His illness prevented this, and the governor left it to the chaplain and the doctor to break the news to him when they thought him strong enough to bear it which was now the case. In the meantime, I received a formal official document saying that my letter had been received and would be communicated to the prisoner in due course. I believe it was simply through a mistake on the part of a clerk that I was not informed of Ernest's illness, but I heard nothing of it till I saw him by his own desire a few days after the chaplain had broken to him the substance of what I had written. 
Ernest was terribly shocked when he heard of the loss of his money. But his ignorance of the world prevented him from seeing the full extent of the mischief. He had never been in serious want of money yet, and did not know what it meant. In reality, money losses are the hardest to bear by any of those who are old enough to comprehend them. A man can stand being told that he must submit to a severe surgical operation, or that he has some disease which will shortly kill him, or that he will be a cripple or blind for the rest of his life. Dreadful as such tidings must be, we do not find that they unnerve the greater number of mankind. Most men, indeed, go coolly enough even to be hanged. But the strongest quail before financial ruin, and the better men they are, the more complete, as a general rule, is their prostration. Suicide is a common consequence of money losses. It is rarely sought as a means of escape from bodily suffering. If we feel that we have a competence at our backs, so that we can die warm and quietly in our beds, with no need to worry about expense, we live our lives out to the dregs, no matter how excruciating our torments. Job probably felt the loss of his flocks and herds more than that of his wife and family, for he could enjoy his flocks and herds without his family. But not his family, not for long, if he had lost all his money. Loss of money, indeed, is not only the worst pain in itself, but it is the parent of all others. Let a man have been brought up to a moderate competence, and have no specially, then let his money be suddenly taken from him, and how long is his health likely to survive the change in all his little ways which loss of money will entail? How long again is the esteem and sympathy of friends likely to survive ruin? People may be very sorry for us, but their attitude towards us hitherto has been based upon the supposition that we were situated thus or thus in money matters. When this breaks down, there must be a restatement of the social problem so far as we are concerned. We have been obtaining esteem under false pretenses. Granted, then, that the three most serious losses which a man can suffer are those affecting money, health, and reputation. Loss of money is far the worst. Then comes ill health, and then loss of reputation. Loss of reputation is a bad third, for if a man keeps health and money unimpaired, it will generally be found that his loss of reputation is due to breaches of parvenu conventions only, and not to violations of those older, better established canons whose authority is unquestionable. In this case a man may grow a new reputation as easily as a lobster grows a new claw. Or, if he have health and money, may thrive in great peace of mind without any reputation at all. The only chance for a man who has lost his money is that he shall still be young enough to stand uprooting and transplanting without more than temporary derangement. And this I believed my godson still to be. By the prison rules he might receive and send a letter after he had been in jail three months, and might also receive one visit from a friend. When he received my letter, he at once asked me to come and see him, which of course I did. 
I found him very much changed, and still so feeble, that the exertion of coming from the infirmary to the cell in which I was allowed to see him, and the agitation of seeing me, were too much for him. At first he quite broke down, and I was so pained at the state in which I found him, that I was on the point of breaking my instructions then and there. I contented myself, however, for the time, with reassuring him that I would help him as soon as he came out of prison, and that when he had made up his mind about what he would do, he was to come to me for what money might be necessary, if he could not get it from his father. To make it easier for him I told him that his aunt, on her deathbed, had desired me to do something of this sort should an emergency arise, so that he would only be taking what his aunt had left him. Then, said he, I will not take the hundred pounds from my father, and I will never see him or my mother again. I said, Take the hundred pounds, Ernest, and as much more as you could get, and then do not see them again if you do not like. This Ernest would not do. If he took money from them, he could not cut them, and he wanted to cut them. I thought my godson would get on a great deal better if he would only have the firmness to do as he proposed, as regards breaking completely with his father and mother, and said so. "'Then don't you like them?' said he, with a look of surprise. "'Like them?' said I. "'I think they're horrid.' "'Oh, that's the kindest thing of all you have done for me!' he exclaimed. "'I thought all—' all middle-aged people liked my father and mother. He had been about to call me old, but I was only fifty-seven and was not going to have this, so I made a face when I saw him hesitating, which drove him into middle-aged. If you like it, I said, I will say all your family are horrid, except yourself and your Aunt Alethea. The greater part of every family is always odious." If there are one or two good ones in a very large family, it is as much as can be expected. Thank you, he replied gratefully. I think I can now stand almost anything. I will come and see you as soon as I come out of jail. Good-bye. For the warder had told us that the time allowed for our interview was at an end. End of chapter 66 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman